Kelly. We did uh, promise you guys a fireside chat, and we do deliver on our promises, I hope. So, hi everyone, and welcome to this fireside chat with uh, Phil Trammell. Phil is a research affiliate at the Global Priorities Institute at Oxford, uh, which is an academic institute that's set up to do foundational research on the questions of doing as much good as possible. He's also a doctoral student in economics at Oxford University. And in his research, he uses a toolbox of decision theory, growth theory, game theory, uh, to shine light on the question of how to do the most good as an individual and as a community. So please join me in welcoming Phil. Uh, my name is Anton Arpan Hansing, and I'm a PhD student in economics at Stockholm University. Uh, and at least initially, I'll be asking the questions, but we'll make sure to put off a reasonable chunk of time to answer questions from the Swap Card app that I'm sure you're all familiar with by now. So if a question pops out in your mind, then be sure to add it there, um, and we'll bring it up at a later point. And you can also upvote and downvote each other's questions, as you may know. But I don't promise to be democratic. Right. Uh, he, gets to, he gets to pick the easy ones. Phil has even uh, threatened to sort of manipulate the scores based on which that's questions he would like to answer or not. So that's not true. I don't trust the system. Um, so, Phil, we'll get to talking about your research, but I'd like to begin by talking more broadly about the relationship between uh, the academic field of economics and the sort of EA project of doing the most good. How do those two uh, interact with each other? Uh, yeah, I mean, in, in lots of ways. I think we've seen um, the contributions of economics to EA thought from the beginning, of course, in development economics, in the economics of animal welfare, um, in the economics of AI. But more broadly and conceptually, I think whenever you're trying to um, do as much good as possible or think through how to go about doing as much good as possible. On some level, you can break up the thought process into, into three parts. You could divvy it up any which way, but here's one natural way to do it, to my mind. First, you have to think about what you mean by doing as much good as possible, sort of ranking possible outcomes from good to bad. Um, you have to come up with some sort of model of the world, the different scenarios on offer then you have to sort of locate yourself in the model of the world. Think about um, what levers you can pull and how to act optimally to make the, make the good outcomes more likely and the bad ones less likely. Um, and when you see it that way, it's pretty clear that economics has something to say about each of those steps. On the, on the normative front, um, you know, economists think a lot about welfare economics and social choice theory and so on. When it comes to modeling the world at a very sort of zoomed out abstract level, um, you know, economic growth models are, you take on the ambitious task of trying to model the whole world for all of time, how big variables like <laughs> labor and um, uh, technology and capital should be expected to evolve over time and, you know. 
and then you know uh, the third part, you know, acting strategically in, in, in the world is, is sort of what econo economics is made for. So um, it's not to say it's always the best tool for the job, but I think there's like a clear link between at least certain fields of economics and like the core building blocks of uh, the whole intellectual project of like doing the most good you can in the world. Yeah. So it seems like economics is ambitious in the sense of tackling all these three aspects of, of doing the most good. Um, but another question is, of course, do we do a good job? And specifically, I know that you've been uh, quite spicily criticizing some normative assumptions that are common in, in economics. Uh, can you tell us about uh, that? <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so, yeah, I think um, uh, the sort of economics is best at that third thing, right? There's, there's nothing like economics when it comes to optimizing for a goal. That's just really, you know, what <laughs> it's made for. When it comes to modeling the world, um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of one tool among many. Um, and when it comes to setting your priorities in the first place, or setting your normative kind of understanding of how to order, order outcomes in the first place, um, unfortunately, the whole economics profession has sort of defaulted to a framework which, um, at least from a sort of EA perspective, is wrong in, in three big ways. It's like to call them the three sins of economics. That's the, that's the spiciness I think he's referring to. Um, the first is that, uh, econ uh, yeah, economists um, uh, basically never think about the intrinsic value of animals or indeed anything other than humans. Um, the second is that they rarely think much about um, what to do when you can change the size of the population, right? Th there's like, there are economists who think about this stuff, but it just hasn't really permeated the, the, the stuff everyone learns no. in grad school and sort of what's baked into most papers. People kind of make confused and internally inconsistent even assumptions about how to compare outcomes of different size populations. Um, obviously in EA, people think a lot about population ethics, but at least thinking about it somehow and having some answer is better than, better than none, and, and the economics is very confused on that. And um, the third, to my mind, is uh, a sort of preference utilitarianism, which assumes that, uh, at least for a given population of humans, what it means to do as much good as possible for them is to satisfy their preferences as much as possible. Now, um, that might, that, uh, as opposed to uh, giving them as much pleasure as possible and as little pain as possible, that would be a more the, the hedonic approach that you more often see applied in sort of EA uh, conversation. Now, that third point might seem like a philosophical technicality, because for the most part, getting people more of what they would prefer to have is the same as alleviating their sufferings and, you know, providing, providing their good experiences. Um, but there are a lot of subtle ways in which I think this ends up messing things up. And the biggest one by far, um, which might have even deserved its own bullet point, the fourth sin or something, hmm. um, which is the whole reason why this third one even made the list, is uh, discounting. The standard economic, uh, you know, framework will tell you that if someone would prefer a little bit of pleasure now and a whole lot of pain in the future, then you're making them better off um, by, by giving them that, 
right? It's perfectly rational to discount the future. It doesn't break, break some law of rationality. Um, it's just it's just kind of messed up, at least from a hedonistic perspective. It's even more messed up if, as a society as a whole, we decide to make the current generation a little bit better off, even if it means condemning um, a whole long future to uh, a risk of non-existence or uh, a risk of, of suffering. And economists don't really seem to have any problem with that because it's just like, well, people discount the future. It's what they prefer. It's how they're inclined to choose. And um, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, it think it's a big problem. Lots of sort of works its way into lots of other problems. How economists think about climate change, how they think about optimal saving. Um, Does yeah. this reflect like a uh, deep uh, moral value among economists, or is it more like coincidental and based on historic reasons, or maybe sort of ways in which it interacts with economic models? Or like what do you make of these uh, supposed uh, mistakes that people are making? Uh, it's a good question. I, I think uh, it's a bit of both. You know, I think to some extent, um, a lot of economists have really internalized the value of not being paternalistic, right? And just sort of deferring to people's preferences, even if they uh, seem sort of pathological in some way. Um, uh, but for a lot of other economists, they just, for most, I would guess, they, they haven't thought about it too much one way or the other. And the fact that everyone kind of acclimates to the norms of, that they kind of absorb in grad school is, is path dependent and it's historically yep. contingent. Yeah. Okay, so you've made this case that the toolbox of economics seems well suited to answer um, some EA-relevant questions. Uh, but then there's a separate question about doing economic research as part of, of uh, the, an academic institution and academia as a system, uh, which is fair to say that the both of us are doing, since we're both PhD students. Um, and something that I often hear from EA academics is that they, they feel this tension between doing what they consider to be the maximally sort of informative research for uh, for their goals on the one hand and what's like maximally conducive to their academic careers on the other hand. Um, is that a trade-off that you find yourself uh, navigating and sort of do you restrict yourself to, to what areas, to, to certain areas on the basis of these uh, professional uh, considerations? Um, I, I don't think there's as much of a trade-off uh, at least in economics as um, most people seem to think. Uh, I think it's, uh, you know, suspiciously easy a cop out to say, oh, the only reason I'm not more successful as an academic is because, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm d you know, I'm, I'm too, too righteous. You know, I'm just too devoted to doing work that's actually valuable. <laughs> that said, I'm not some like amazingly successful academic. You know, I've just sort of uh, been doing my work at GPI, and I, I hope that one day I'll be a professor and have more credit or whatever, but um, I'll, I'll give you my thoughts on this, but I just wanted to be clear. These are, you know, n not much better than anyone else's thoughts. Uh, my impression is that, at least at the moment, um, there are loads of open questions that are very academically interesting, or intellectually, intellectually interesting to academic economists. So if you think of you know the vertical axis, how interesting academic economists find the question, and uh, how EA relevant a question is. Um, the set is 
something like a square, you know? So there, there's that corner, which is pretty maximal on both dimensions. Um, there isn't, so there isn't much of a trade-off if you hunt for the corner. That doesn't mean that everything EA relevant is going to be academically uh, respectable. It certainly doesn't mean the, the opposite, that anything that happens to be hot uh, in, in the field these days is going to have a lot of EA applications. But if, if you're creative enough and, you know, kind of hunt around enough for something in that corner, you can find it. And if anything, talking to people engaged in, you know, EA work can be a rich source of inspiration for, like, profoundly economic questions that just, uh, the profession hasn't raised yet. So like lots of, lots of my own work has been inspired by, uh, you know, conversations in places like this that it would have taken me a lot longer to come up with on my own, I think. So that's kind of optimistic. On the other hand, I do think that um, uh, ac the, the quantity quality trade-off in academia seems a bit different from what I would have thought it should be from like first EA principles. Um, you're expected to put an immense amount of time into writing about like a few topics in a lot of detail and rigor. And that's like great, and there's a place for that, and presumably academia is a place for that. But I'm more I would I wish I could do a bit more like 80-20ing. So that's the trade off right. I see. It's not a, it's not right. content, it's more like quantity quality. Yeah, moving on a bit to your uh your actual research. Um I think that you initially became well-known among EAs a couple of years ago when you talked about uh, something you called patient philanthropy. Um, so just to rehash a bit for those who, who weren't around at the time, uh, what is this idea of patient philanthropy? And like, why should we think about it? Uh, yeah, so um, I think this, this kind of illustrates what I was saying before, this kind of three-step um, three process of thinking about how to, how to do good. Um, uh, th the idea was, um, well, normatively, future benefits are no less important than present benefits. Um, it so happens, when I open my eyes and look at the world, that people are systematically um, inclined to be impatient. I think we all feel this in our everyday lives. We observe it when we see people uh, in aggregate seeming to save too little for their retirement. So uh, people, people don't invest as much for the future as would be warranted um, from this perspective that the future matters as much as the present, usually. And then step three, acting strategically in light of that, that view of the world, um, the, the thought was, well, if you're just an unusually patient individual saving for their own retirement, you should have a slightly higher savings rate than the average. But if you're an unusually pa patient philanthropist, and all the other people funding the stuff that you want funded are spending too fast, the implication for you is more radical. You should save not just a little bit more than average, but everything. Because you want to pull the collective savings rate, the savings rate exhibited by you and all the other funders of the things that you care about, up as hard as you can toward the optimal savings rate. So if it's currently 19%, we're saving 19% of the money we make every year, and it should be 20%, but you only have a small fraction of the total, then you, you should save everything you have until you've pulled that collective savings rate up to the 20% or whatever. Um, 
so that that was the idea. Um, same and, and of course, conversely, you know, the same logic applies in reverse. You should say you should spend as fast as you can if you think everyone's oversaving. But yeah, but it's, it sounds a bit uh, self-defeating to save everything indefinitely as long as you consider yourself uh, more patient than others. So like, where does uh, where does this reasoning uh, change? Yeah. So there's a bunch of things that could that could uh, cause this to break and, and make it warranted to start spending. The most straightforward one, in the way I just laid it out, would be. If you're saving everything and those other people aren't, then you're going to be growing as a fraction of like the total yep. wealth that will ever be allocated to the area in question. And there will come a point at which you've pulled up the collective savings rate up to the level that you thought was optimal, right? So your saving 100% <laughs> will eventually be pulling the collective savings rate up to 20% right. once mm -hmm. you're, you know, um, if they weren't saving anything, then you'd be pulling it up once you were a fifth of the total wealth or something. And then you're effectively setting the aggregate savings rate to whatever, or almost whatever. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah. exactly. So this, this seems to be in some um, tension with the a common EA idea that existential risk is quite high. Uh, specifically, like if there's, if there's quite some risk that uh, we won't be here in 10 years' time, um, how should that sort of... Uh, impact our decision uh, about whether to spend now or, or to spend later? Oh, sure. Well, the higher you think X risk is, all else equal, the higher you think the, the spending rate uh, should be, collectively. Um, I will say it's still true, all else equal, that if you think that um, you and the other people funding the stuff that you care about know the same things, have the same beliefs and goals and everything, except that they have this impatience, they have this bias toward, um, toward the present. Uh, you should still think that they're going to be inclined to overspend, typically, right? Uh, but that's holding all else equal. And it could be that their, their bias toward overspending is offset by an ignorance they have. They don't know that existential risk is as high as you know no. it is, which biases them the other way, toward underspending. Right, saving too much for a future that may never come. Checkmate, Phil. And <laughs> well, it's just, a, it's, it's just another consideration. Yeah. Uh, you know, which one wins out is, uh, you know, is a question for you to make up your own mind about. But um, uh, yeah, I think people hadn't been thinking as much about this consideration that I that I emphasized, which was the difference in yeah. in impatience. Yeah. I think uh, when you first hear it, it sounds like a quite theoretical argument about. Um, optimal aggregate savings rate and so on. Uh, but in recent years, you've actually been a part of implementing this thinking. Uh, and there's now a patient philanthropy fund. Um, could you give us an overview of like, how did that come to be and uh, what were the challenges involved in setting it up? And uh, sure, I mean, so how it came to be is that uh, Founders Pledge, in particular one sheer Hoimachers at Founders Pledge, um, which is an, an organization that helps uh, uh, very high net worth individuals to sort of uh, uh, make good decisions about their uh, philanthropic spending. Instead of yeah, I mean, a bit, a bit more narrowly, uh, they, um, uh, they're a community of startup founders who pledge to give away some fraction of, uh, right. of their earnings, you know, um, once they make it big, or if they make it big. Um, he found that some of the founders were interested in um, 
you know, increasing the, <laughs> the collective um, philanthropic savings rate, uh, at least for kind of EA type uh, type areas. And um, yeah, I would be interested in pooling their wealth for long-term philanthropic investment and something that came to be called the Patient Philanthropy Fund. I don't know too much about how it was set up actually because that was taken care of by Founders Pledge. Um, I am honored to be on the management committee that advises on it. Um, but yeah, so it's, uh, um, there's a lot to say about it and uh, you can you can <laughs> Google it and find find out lots more details. I don't know if you could spend the whole time, the whole rest of the time talking about it. Mm. But um, you know, that's $2.5 million roughly, I think, at the moment. And um, uh, you know, is um, uh, advised by myself. Sheer, I mentioned. Abba Vivalt is the, uh, uh, the uh, recently appointed director of GPI. Where you know she also recently joined the committee. Luke Ding, a big EA donor, and Max Daniel, who runs the EA Infrastructure Fund, and. Um, uh, yeah, we're we're hoping to um, you know keep track of the uh, <laughs> of like patterns in EA spending and um, start spending once we've become a large enough fraction of the total that um, from from the perspective that the kind of that a a primary determinant of spending rates is sort of time preference and that kind of other. Other other funders are like quite significantly inclined to overspend. From that perspective, at what point would would we um, be warranted in starting to give? And that, that that is kind of the motivation for the fund. And yeah. yeah. Anyway. Uh, uh, <laughs> there's so much. There's so much to say. Yeah, I, I, like I, I understand. But uh, like, uh, if people here would be open to like donating to this kind of fund, or like it, if they were considering the possibility of donating to this kind of fund or to something. Uh, some something else in the long-term space to give like a fair comparison. Um, how should they sort of think about that decision uh, or make that decision? Because technically they yeah. can contribute, right? You I think you can oh, donate oh yes, through giving course. what you can. If you through right uh, through the giving what we can platform, um, it's one of the sort of outside uh, like options for um, the where it's where it's easy to give through there. Um, yeah, I guess I would say um, the first question for you to make up your mind about is, you know, whether you believe that the uh, collective savings rate is too, <laughs> too high or too low. Um, it seems a bit unlikely that we're kind of right on the knife edge where um, you should be kind of indifferent on the margin between spending now and investing for next year. And that's kind of the only circumstance in which it makes sense to <laughs> give like a constant fraction of your income every year, mm. uh, which is uh, this sort of standard, you know, standard formula, right? Giving 10% every year or something. Um, so if you think that uh, the world needs our capital now, then you should probably be sort of borrowing against your own future income to the extent that you can and giving as much as you can now, right? And then if, you know, like not saving anything for your own retirement for a while, knowing that uh, you'll be able to make up the gap with all of the future kind of giving what we can contributions or whatever that you could have made in the future. Um, 
but that you kind of gave in advance because your charity is more needed in the present. Um, I don't see a lot of people doing that or really advocating for that, but that does seem to be like what you would um, have to be pushing for if you thought, if you didn't think that some sort of something in the other direction, like a pull in the patient no. direction, were warranted. But then, I okay, so if you are going to um, sort of take the patient's side of that, you know, of that binary, yep. um, there's a lot of ways to implement that. Uh, if you're in the U.S., um, there, there's you know, these things called donor-advised funds, which are like tiny little private foundations that make it very easy for you to um, uh, grow your investments tax-free and then decide what to do with them later. But you can't take, that, take it out for yourself. You know, it has to go to a charity eventually. Um, but unfortunately, outside the U.S., there aren't a lot of great options for investing yeah. for, future, um, for future charity that are both tax-free and kind of flexible and in which you tie your hands. Um, so uh, you might want to consider the patient philanthropy fund as something that does check those boxes and you know, allows for deferral on the timing question, sort of analogously to how giving to like the EA funds, animal welfare fund, um, constitutes deferral on the question of like how to best give within the animal welfare space. You know, we're, we're familiar with sort of... Uh, people trust yeah. your skills in setting up organizations and uh, the board's sort of judgments of when it might be appropriate to, um, to spend versus, uh, versus to save, uh, then they might consider it. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that we're specializing in, that second point, is oh. um, the, the, the timing of, you know, sort of yeah. philanthropic spending on EA long-termist causes. Um, not my own ability to found organizations, because that's <laughs> sort of, yeah, taken care of by um, Founders Pledge that is sort of like, that are currently incubating this, and we'll spin it out in 10 years. There's um, lawyers in the loop, hopefully. And yes, that was very much no. yes. <laughs> Okay, so moving on to more um, uh, recent work of yours, uh, tell us what you've been uh, thinking about recently in the last uh, couple of years. Uh, yeah, so, um, well, all kinds of things. You can um, <laughs> read my literature review on AI and economic growth and um, this and that. The, the main project, though, the one I'm most excited about, I th the one I think will be my job market paper, um, is on crowding out. So, uh, yeah, the, the idea here is, and this is very much part three, you know, <laughs> this is very much uh, uh, thinking about acting strategically. <laughs> acting strategically, right? Um, the nitty gritty of that. So, let's say you woke up one morning with a newfound concern for animal welfare, and you decided that from now on, you, every time, every week, you went to the grocery store, you were going to buy one ounce less chicken than you normally buy, uh, assuming that used to be positive, and the money you've saved, you'll spend on broccoli. Now, to some extent, you should probably think that um, uh, this change of behavior will, in expectation, produce less chicken in the world, right? No. But also, to some extent, you should think that other people will just buy up the chicken you're leaving on the shelf. And so, um, 
maybe the expected reduction in chicken production is like half a chicken per chicken you cut back on, something like that. That Why would it be less than one? Because uh, the store doesn't notice that, or they they, they wouldn't adjust their purchases, or the chicken is already dead, or no, no, no. I'm talking about like even even after you know um, we've gone through this <laughs> a few times. You know, a few weeks have passed, yeah. a few months have passed. Um, the intuition can be sort of uh, you know simply visualized with a supply curve and a demand curve, and the idea is if uh, well, I'll. For those of you who have seen a supply curve and a demand curve, let's say um, this is the, I guess this would be the demand curve, this is the <laughs> supply curve, and where they meet is uh, the, the quantity of chicken. Well, if, if you move the demand curve over by one unit, then how much the intersection moves will generally not be a whole unit, it'll only be like half a unit. Does that make sense? You kind of moved to the side by the difference between my thumb and my middle finger but the quantity only moved by the difference between my thumb and my index finger. Someone right. would have to do some YouTube editing on so this so, so anyway, that, that, would be <laughs> the, that would be this um, sort of graphical thought. The way to put it in prose would be um, if the supply curve for chicken is upward sloping, that means the more chicken is getting produced, the more expensive it is to uh, produce each chicken. We're using the resources that are most suitable for producing chicken that make it really dirt cheap to crank out the chicken first. Mm -hmm. And then if there's like lots and lots of demand for chicken, we have to use up resources, you know, the land that's ever closer to the city or something that's more expensive, um, less and less suitable for making chicken. And so the, the price of the marginal chicken goes up and up. And so if you cut back on chicken and less is getting produced, then the price per chicken is falling. Now, it, it can go the other way, and there's like all kinds of other wrinkles which we could yeah. get into or whatever, but at least as a first pass thought, that would be the reason why if you cut back, the price falls a little bit, but that price fall induces other people to buy a little bit more. Hmm. And so the new equilibrium is somewhere in between uh, having no impact and having as much impact as you might naively think. So that's, th that's kind of what you're doing to just that market, the market for chicken. People had already thought about that. There's a whole book, Compassion by the Pound, which um, goes through this in the context of animal welfare, you know, in, in general, different kinds of animal products. Um, but uh, what people haven't thought about so much is the... Um, the general equilibrium implications of all of this. So this whole analysis is in partial equilibrium. You're just looking at one market. So it looks at only the price of chicken, but exactly. not how it affects the consumption of other goods. Exactly. When you think about it, those other people who bought that half unit of chicken that you were leaving on the shelf, their money for that didn't come from the sky. It came out of their budgets for things that were close substitutes for chicken from their perspective, probably, right? like out of their budget for pork. So they might be buying less pork in order to buy some of that extra chicken that you're leaving. And so your decision to move from chicken to broccoli changed the number of pigs in the world, even though you had nothing to do with, with that. And then that can affect, uh, you know, it can affect a, a fourth market and a fifth and a sixth. So what you're doing to the whole world can 
be a little opaque. And um, uh, that's what I'm trying to shed light on. So that whole illustration was in the context of ethical consumerism. But I said the project was about crowding out. Yep. And philanthropists face crowding out just as much as ethical consumers. I think even more, maybe. And those are the applications, the applications to philanthropy that I'm, I actually think are most valuable. So, so are, you seeing, yeah. are you seeing this ethical consumerism uh, angle to be a, an introduction or a, a way to start thinking about questions that you consider to be more action relevant? Or do you, do you see that as being like an interesting uh, EA relevant question in its own sake? Uh, I think it's somewhat interesting in its own sake, but it wouldn't have been like, you know, top of my list or whatever no. if, if, uh, if that were the only application. Um, so what does the situation, how does it change when you consider uh, a philanthropist funding um, philanthropic endeavors as opposed to like personal uh, consumption? Um, yeah, I mean, if anything, I think the, the effects can be exacerbated. Um, um, because, uh, you know, if, if you're treating things purely, you know, Chicken is like partially a private good and partially a public bad in this case, right? Uh, if you care both about how much you consume and about how much total gets produced in the world, you know, you, you care, you, you, you might like the taste of it, but dislike the production of it. Um, or it could go in the same direction, you know, some fair trade thing. You might think it's like improving the world if the more I buy of it and I like actually getting it. It has benefits beyond your right. uh, taste buds. Right. But so all of these like external costs and benefits. You know, the extent to which things are partially public goods and bads, or what are introducing these, these wrinkles, you know, these sorts of considerations that I'm trying to think about. And um, in, in, in philanthropy, things are, in general, purely public goods that you're trying to provide. And so the, the crowding out will be, um, will be much more dramatic. So by Here's public goods, example. you mean yeah. stuff that provides benefits to people other than uh, those who are funding it. Oh yeah, sorry. I, I mean, um, uh, something that is where, yeah, multiple people value its provision. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, they don't care who provided it. Or yep. They just care about the, the, the produ production of it. Um, so it's a, it's a little abstract, but I'll just kind of Give you know, <laughs> I'll just give an example of, yeah, of, of philanthropy, which I, I think people often find helpful. So, um, um, back in 2017, in uh, August, I believe, Bill Gates put out this blog post that. Um, uh, that the Gates Foundation was meeting its malaria reduction targets uh, faster than they had anticipated, and, th and they attributed that he attributed this to a faster than expected increase in outside funding, funding from people people like us, you know, giving to the Against Malaria Foundation or whatever. And then six weeks later, um, there was a another blog post saying that they were now going to be spending um, uh, much more quickly on uh, their other big cause area, the, 
the Gates Foundation's other big cause area, which is a U.S. education initiative. Right. And there's no explicit connection there. Uh, and so there's no proof here that <laughs> crowding out is what was going on. But I think I like that about this example because it demonstrates just how pervasive this problem can be uh, and how much more widespread it can be than it seems. Right? It takes no large leap of imagination to think that, well, this Gates Foundation is just rational enough to have targets and to care about multiple things, some of which you might not care so much about, like American education maybe. And, um, and, uh, and thereby totally, totally undo the effects of what you think you're doing. You know? um, they, they, they could just have been taking a dollar out of uh, funding malaria eradication efforts for every dollar that a GiveWell donor was putting in, right? And so like counterfactually, we provided our AMF dollars to, uh, to uh, the Gates Foundation rather than in right, right, or well, ultimately to some sort of American school kids or something, right. um, or to some sort of uh, creative American principal or whatever. Mm. Um, and 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 the the really scary thing is that this is not a conclusion that requires uh, an economic model full of like perfectly rational, you know, ro robotic agents. It only takes one. Everyone in the world funding malaria can no. be totally. Um, uh, totally insensitive to what you do, could just kind of care about malaria because they knew someone who died of malaria or something, and c can be totally not strategic about it. It, only, it doesn't take a Bill Gates. It takes one person as, who's contributing as much as you are to be able to pull a dollar out for every dollar you put in. Totally, one for one, right? And, and th they should want to do that, in fact, yep. if they're funding multiple things. And... Um, and have like, they're only funding malaria because they think it's underfunded on the margin relative to those other things, right? You're just making it less underfunded for every yeah. dollar you fund it. So, um, seems like very different from the chicken case, but mathematically and sort of structurally, if you think about it, it's kind of the same. Uh, Is thing. this the dynamic that EA as a movement has been free riding on by, by emphasizing neglectedness? Uh, yeah. Is there some truth to that? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So are we um, the bad guys? Uh, well, uh, no, uh, I mean, maybe, but if so, if this isn't the reason, I don't think. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Good to you. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's very underappreciated how, how uh, pervasive a phenomenon this is. Um, but then it sort of, um, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of internalizing it and acting on it when we take neglectedness as a heuristic for what to fund, right? Yeah. We're just saying, okay, well, you know, we're, we're going to let ourselves be crowded out by all the people who funded all the other stuff to the point of making it not neglected. Yeah. Right? Well, other people are also trying to fund things that are not neglected, and yeah. so whenever you fund things, you're making them less neglected for them. So, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So you've already done a ton of research in this like, global priority space, but you're also an educator. <laughs> uh, so you've... Uh, for last summer, you developed what I think might be the world's uh, first course that specifically deals with um, economics and its intersection with global priorities research. Um, could you tell us just like briefly what, what was the idea behind the course? Oh, sure. Well, um, uh, so it's this, it's not an official uh, Oxford University course, so it is uh, on, on 
Oxford premises. Um, but this uh, two and a half week course I called Topics in Economic Theory and Global Prioritization um, uh, that attempts to summarize what seem, with a few years experience, to be um, the, uh, yeah, tools from economic theory um, that sort of check three boxes are highly relevant to thinking about how to do the most good from an EA perspective, you know, roughly in that sort of three-part framework I laid out at the beginning, yep. are not covered in a standard economics curriculum. It's possible to finish an econ PhD and not have learned the thing on the list, and I happen to know about it. If it checked all three boxes, it made the list, and there was just enough for one course's worth. Um, so, yeah, that was the idea. Nice. And it, do you plan to offer it every summer until uh, the end of time? Uh, well, um, it'll be offered this summer at least. Unfortunately, um, uh, applications aren't still being accepted. It's it's all full for full for 2023. But um, yeah, I am certainly, it, it got good reviews last year. Um, you were one of the attendees. I'm partly responsible for the good reviews. And uh, oh, it's good, good yeah. to hear. Well, they were anonymous, but they were also unanimous. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm, I'm very proud to say everyone okay. gave it a four or a five out of five. Um, and uh, I guess what might be relevant for people in this room is that like, if you go into academic economics, then there's, there's some level of support uh, for you to develop research ideas within this this broad direction of of uh, of what Phil considers what <laughs> Phil no, Phil knows stuff about and what he considers important. Yeah, I mean, right. So this whole field, of course, is very young, and uh, the support resources are still being developed. And this isn't the only thing, um, but course-wise, so far, it is the only thing, and um, for now. Um, and yeah, more generally, I think uh, anyone interested in going to econ grad school for EA purposes, should be aware that there are there are various resources. There's this Forethought Fellowship, um, GPI Summer Fellowship, you know, this course and various other resources. So. Come talk to us if you're interested. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, let's move on to uh, the app discussion. Uh, first question, what are your thoughts on fanaticism? Should we let tiny probabilities guide the decision making? <laughs> Quick uh, <laughs> um, so fanaticism, maybe yeah. we should describe it to the audience first. Uh, sure. Yeah. Well, I think letting small probabilities yeah. guide decision making seems like a good description. You know, if, um, if the possible upside is big enough, then uh, you know uh, the recommendation to always maximize expected value um, would 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 say that you should. Yeah. You, sh you should go something with a, you should go with the action with a small probability of success, um, <coughs> because if it pays off, the the value would be really high. Um, yeah, I um, I mean I don't know, <laughs> it's not something I've specialized in, uh, so I um, um, all I can say is there are some people at GPI where I work who have thought a lot more about fanaticism than I have. Um, one of them, Hayden Wilkinson has a paper defending fanaticism. Mm. Christian Tarzny has, I think, an excellent paper um, arguing that it's at least rationally permissible not to 
be a fanatic. Okay. Um, so that his paper is called uh, um, Exceeding Expectations, Stochastic Dominance of the General Decision Theory. Uh, um, and I don't know if we can get into the details, but that would be the paper to look up on the other side of it. Ultimately, my best guess would be that yes, we should be fanatics. But there's a kind of higher order point that like, well, if you don't know which, which decision theory you should be going with, then maybe right. you should sort of um, be a, a, a little bit averse to fanaticism, uh, just, just in case it's wrong to be a fanatic. And, and strategically maybe come up with a better name than, than uh, fanaticist if you're going to self-describe. Yeah, it, it, is, it is true. I mean, it, you could say like being a fan. That seems better. Oh, yeah. oh, oh okay. Okay, next question. Um, it's quite competitive to get hired to GPI. What are some other excellent universities in Europe that do GPR or EA-relevant economic research? Oh, well, I mean, from the perspective I was, ho you know, hopefully communicating at the beginning, there's loads and loads of uh, EA-relevant economics research, mm. right? I mean, um, I think we, we don't realize the extent to which all the, like, uh, economists of the past or whatever have um, created ideas that, like, permeate EA discussion oh. now. Um, I, I mentioned all the, like, you know, how development economics and so on was... Um, obviously, obviously, the result of economics, and there's still at least somewhat, you know, EA-relevant economics research. But all the all the growth theory in the world that sheds light on what will happen if, like, capital can fully replace labor in light of AI, and what we can do about that to you know, shape the whole course of the future. That's like it's being done all over the place. Um, yeah, I mean, at the moment, if you're looking for like card-carrying EA, uh, a, a, you know, econ-type work, then you've got GPI. Um, UT Austin has a center called the Population Wellbeing Initiative, which is something like a GPI sister center, but more um, more econ focused. And um, uh, I guess that would that would be it at the moment in terms yeah. of explicit centers. But it makes it like if you but then there's individuals in other places, you know. So if you look at like the course or the syllabus for the course that you sort of put together as well, much of it is like standard economic models. Uh, with certain tweaks in ways that make them more relevant for, for EA purposes. And whichever university y y you go to, there's going to be people who are familiar with those basic models and uh, will realistically... No, 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 no. Okay. You're <laughs> this is... This is uh, um, you're disagreeing? Uh, yeah, yeah, there's so much specialization um, that, uh, yeah, like I said, you can be, you can be a PhD or whatever and, and not, uh, not know oh, any okay. of that stuff. Oh. Uh, or even about whole fields. Um, you know, my, my cousin is, you know, Stephen Morris. He's like this uh, game theorist at MIT. Um, and he, like, doesn't know the first thing about growth theory. You know, I, he's, I'm, I'm just sort of name, name dropping, but whatever. I have this cousin who's much older than me, but who's, who's, a, who's great at the part of economics that he does, was the editor-in-chief of Econometrica, you know, I think probably the most selective econ journal right. in the world, certainly um, one of the top five. And yet, um, what to my mind is one of the most basic building blocks of modern growth theory, the Jones model. Um, he, he just like never, never come across it uh, until I, we were talking about it and I explained it. So, um, and with growth theory in particular, there's, there's whole departments where like basically no one does it. No one at Oxford does growth theory. A bunch of people at LSE do it, at Stanford do it, um, but you, you 
you can't just rely on everyone kind of even knowing the right. basics about certain corners of economics. Yeah. Okay, so uh, look it up before you apply to uh, graduate studies. Then. Yeah, look at look up yeah, what sure. fields are 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 the specialty of that department, and then think about the EA relevance of those fields. That would be the the recommendation, rather than whether there's a person in that department who's like a card carrying, you know, giving what we can member or something. That's oh. not the thing to look for. Uh, what do you think is the main reason that X-risk mitigation is underprovided by society at large? Is it there's four alternatives? Okay. <laughs> uh, one, impatience. Two, coordination failure. Three, neglecting small probabilities. Or four, something else. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it depends a lot on the X-risk. So um, one of the few X-risks that we've come pretty close to. Uh, just dealing with about as much as anyone could want, not quite, um, but pretty close, is uh, uh, asteroid detection and deflection. And there the probabilities are really tiny, um, but they're concrete. So I think it's not that sy systematically policy like ignores small probability. Um, maybe sometimes it does. Yeah. But I think it, it, it ignores small and ambiguous probability. You know, ones where some people can just say, ah, that would never happen. Like, no, we clearly know that asteroids happen, like the dinosaurs were a thing. And so we can say, ah, oh, you know, it happens once every 100 million years or something. And then you can actually plug a number into a cost-benefit analysis and say, yeah, you know, it's worth spending this much, at least, um, on uh, scanning the sky for asteroids or whatever. So, yeah, so... Um, Imprecision in and lack of evidence is worse than... Uh, the size of the probability. Yeah, I, that that would be my 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 guess. Um, and then, uh, yeah, likewise, you know, coordination failure versus impatience. I mean, obviously, when it comes to uh, threats from um, like great ca great power conflict and nuclear war, and th that's all coordination failure. Hmm. Um, and for other things, I think. Uh, you know, I think it's it's less about coordination failure and more just about like in in climate change. I think the main thing um, preventing the U.S. from doing more to mitigate climate change is just the impatience of Americans, basically. Um, th and it's it's not like uh, just a failure of, of coordination. Um, the U.S. is such a large fraction of global emissions. It's not like. Could solve a lot of it. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's, it's not like oh, the, the only reason is it's, it's so hard to get other countries to no. cooperate. So, no, like um, anyway, that would be my take on it. Okay. Um, what are some community building efforts that you would be excited about if seen through the lens of patient philanthropy, P patient long-termism? Sorry. Um, so how does it relate to community building? Oh, uh, is com. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I mean, in general, the more you're into the sort of, um, yeah, patient long-termist view, the, the more you think we should be building up resources for deployment in the future rather than de deploying them in the near term, um, including human capital type resources, you know, a, a vibrant, talented EA community. The more community building type stuff you'll want to do. But as for what kinds of community building, seem best on the patient long-termist view. Uh, I, I can't say I've thought about it too much. I, um, I guess just, you know, 
the ones that take a long time to pay off are going to be the ones that seem better. <laughs> it starts really young. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that that's a, a good application of it. So a lot of like existing EA outreach is to university students, um, uh, presumably in the hope that by the time um, the people are um, older and more productive, they'll be they'll be using their talents in valuable ways. Um, whereas if you thought that like um, you know, most of the value of the EA community was going to be um, in work done in the next like two or three years or something. You probably wouldn't want to go for the students. You'd want to want to go for people who already uh, had the skills, and you know, they just had to kind of be re, you know, put to yep. better uses. So I think we're already kind of doing a relatively patient approach to music development. Impact kindergarten. That's uh, well, <laughs> Phil said uh, it. That's. <laughs> Um, do you have any thoughts on the relation of economics and AI safety? Um, well, I mean, I think economics can motivate AI safety by shedding light on, like, <coughs> just how dramatically uh, AI could transform the world, right? <laughs> um, I think one well, kind like of one kind of insight theory. one kind of insight from growth theory is that yeah a lot of these growth models which were not designed to say anything about AI in particular hmm. turn out to show that if you just replace all of the Ls with Ks everywhere if you explore what would happen if capital could fully replace labor hmm. as like in under AGI and full robotics you get like really really like dramatic effects um, as for how to actually apply economics to AI safety. Honestly, it's not something I've thought that much about. Mm. Um, there is, I have tentative thoughts about how like principal agent problems might be relevant to thinking about the management of sort of black boxy AI. So uh, a principal agent problem is basically uh, how do you make someone do something for you if you can't observe exactly what they're doing? Is that a question? Like, how right, do you right, right. How do you incentivize them to kind of do what, do you, what want. you want when you can't observe yeah. well, what, what they end up doing. And also, you know, I'm not the first to notice this, but like often um, the homo economicuses that populate economic models are kind of more more like robots than like humans. So maybe like economic models. We should introduce could, uh, <laughs> humans <laughs> into <laughs> right, right. But I mean, I mean, uh, economic models might actually like apply more to AIs than to humans in some sense. I mean, maybe not, right? AIs are proving proving to be very human because they're trained on all this like human data, and yeah. you know. So, I, I the, yeah, those are some scattered thoughts. But really, the answer is I don't know. No. If you have any third thoughts, maybe we could stick around here for ten minutes, and if someone wants to talk, then uh, sure, come sure. on. Yeah, we're the hour's done, but happy to yes. happy to keep chatting. Yeah, thanks for attending and another warm round of applause for Phil. Oh, quickly, quickly. Um, the I should have said, I'm so sorry. The summer course, um, even though applications have closed for this year, uh, you can sign up to be notified if you'd like to um, apply for future years or uh, get access to online content based on it. So they're all going to be recorded and uh, maybe turned into some sort of more polished online course as well. So uh, check that out.